Hello and welcome to What Monkeys Do. My name is Morten Kamvarnasen and this is a podcast about what it takes to make a change and make it stick. How much can you trust your memory? What is memory? Well, let's find out in today's episode of What Monkeys Do. One of my strongest early memories is from when I was eight years old. So I'm playing with my sister in a little forest across the road from where we live. She's my little sister, so she is seven at the time. I had stolen some matches from my father, and we wanted to make a small fireplace in the forest, you know, just for fun. It was a warm summer day, and as soon as I set fire to the small pile of wood, the nearby grass also started to burn. And soon the fire went out of control. In reality, it was not a very big fire, but for an eight-year-old, the whole world was on fire. And it was my fault. So I had to go home and get help. My sister, she started to cry. She hid in a cave we sometimes played in, but because I was the older brother, I knew that I had to go and get help. It was my mistake, and I had to do something. And I ran home. And I was crying as I ran across the road to find my dad. The first person I met was our neighbor, and I cried, the forest is on fire, the forest is on fire. And then I found my dad, and I also told him through my tears that the forest was on fire. My dad and our neighbor grabbed some garden tools, ran to the fire, and put it out. My sister was nowhere to be seen, and we had to find her. We called out her name, we looked everywhere, and then we found her in the end in that small cave which we were playing in. I told that story to my sister and my father about 10 years ago, and they both said that they remember that incident, but then they said that it wasn't actually me who had run home to get help. It was my sister. I had hit in the cave. I swear that I can remember that trip home. I can remember the tears running down my, my cheek. I remember running across the road. I remember meeting my neighbor. I remember finding my sister. And had I not been familiar with my guest's work then, I would have sworn that my sister and my father were in this together. They were pulling my legs. But I knew that they could be right. Why? Because our memory is not perfect. In fact, it may be far from perfect. My guest today really needs no introduction for anyone who studied psychology. Her work is mandatory reading. In 2002, she was ranked 58th in the Review of General Psychology's list of the 100 most influential psychological researchers in the 20th century, and she was ranked the highest woman on the list. She is an expert on human memory, and she is probably best known for her work on the nature of false memories and on eyewitness memory, but she is an authority on memory. Welcome to you, Elizabeth Loftus. Well, thank you. Thank you. Fantastic. I want to start this conversation in a very specific place, because the first time that I heard about your work was when I was at university and when we were learning about the Lost in the Mall experiment, which I know that you did. And the experiment shows that it's actually possible to plant false memories in people. Can you tell us a little bit about that experiment, You know what the setup was and what the conclusions from that was? Sure. Well, going back a little bit before that experiment, I and other psychologists, memory scientists, had done quite a few studies showing that you could 
change people's memories for the details of an event that they actually had experienced. They could have witnessed an accident where, you know, a car went through a green light and you could convince witnesses that the car went through a red light. That's what I mean by a change in a detail. But in the 1990s, I wanted to study the question of just how far can you go with people? Could you plant an entire event into the mind of ordinary people? Hmm. I spent some time with my students trying to think of a, a way to do this and what kind of memory we wanted to try to plant so that we could study this process. And we came up with the idea, why don't we make people try to believe and remember that when they were five or six years old, they were lost in a shopping mall, that they were frightened, they were ultimately rescued by an elderly person and reunited with the family. And that is the study that we did through the power of suggestion, planted those very rich false memories. Hmm. So it's basically a, an event that, that has never taken place. And they're being told that that is what happened, maybe by somebody in their family or somebody that they know well. So they've been told that this is what happened. And then all of a sudden that becomes a memory like any other memory they have from their, from their childhood. That's right. We 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 actually did talk to the mother or father of our research subject. We found out some some true things that happened to the subject, and then with the parent, we created a completely false experience. We then presented these um, experiences to the subject as if they were all true, and we'd learned them from from their mother or father. And we encourage them to think about them and try to remember. And by the time we were done with about three suggestive interviews, we got about a quarter of these ordinary people to believe and remember all of this or a part of this made-up experience. That was the first study that demonstrated that you could plant an entire memory into the mind of someone, but there would be many other studies that uh, were done by other scientists or by my my research group that that showed the same thing with other kinds of events, things that would have been traumatic if they actually had happened. I, I suppose this is a believable thing for me that this could have happened because you know I go to the mall, I go to the mall with my mother many times, and I would have been lost there. Is a is a believable thing, I guess. How. How far can you take that? I mean, I, a more traumatic thing or more something that would be out of the ordinary might have been more difficult? Or are there also some studies where it has been quite a, I wouldn't say unbelievable thing, but something which is a little bit further away from a day-to-day -day thing? That, well, that's exactly the criticism that we got after we started to present our results at scientific meetings and to publish the findings The kind of thing that you're suggesting isn't getting lost sort of calm and, can, you know, show us you could plant something that would have been more unusual or bizarre or traumatic. Mm. Other investigators stepped in and we too, some planted a false memory that you nearly drowned and had to be rescued by a lifeguard. Another group planted a false memory that you were attacked by a vicious animal or you had a serious 
indoor or outdoor accident. That was a Canadian study. They succeeded with about half of their subjects. With my Italian collaborator, we planted a false memory in Italian subjects that uh, when you were a kid, you witnessed a person being demonically possessed. A another group planted a false memory that when you were a teenager, you committed a crime and it was serious enough that the police came to investigate. So you can see that subsequent studies planted even more unusual, bizarre, or traumatic experiences. I think it is fascinating. It's also a little bit scary because before I studied psychology, I was not only convinced that my memories were completely true, but also that all of the things with that memory was exact correct. And the story that I that I told in the beginning there, that was actually a, a, a dramatic shift that I had made in my memory, in, in the construction of my memory, because I had thought that I had been the big brother, saved my little sister in essence, but in actual fact, it was the other way around. So it really can be quite big things that can be, I would say, not correct or even false. That's true. I mean, your story is a lovely story. I mean, I suppose it's conceivable that somehow your father and sister constructed something together, even inadvertently, that conformed to their version. Maybe your version is actually the true one. That would be a, a you know, a, a twist in this story. But it, it could also be that you, after all that passage of time and reconstructing the event and brought in bits and pieces of the experience, but um, made some mistakes in the process. Yes. And I guess I guess what I, I learned by thinking about that is that I had thought that our memory was really just a movie that our eyes were depicting and then it put it down into a box in our brain. And if I had a good memory, I was able to locate that box and play that movie again. But what I find is that memory is actually a lot more constructed. Can you maybe give us a little bit of understanding of what is memory and how should we understand memory? It's a process. We, we take in information uh, from our experiences. We, we can store it. And, and later on, when we want to answer questions or try to remember an experience, what we're really doing is not replaying a movie. We are often taking bits and pieces of experience and constructing what feels like a memory. Those bits and pieces can come from different times or different places. And now we've reconstructed something that's an alteration or a, a distortion of the way things, things really were. That's why we talk about the constructive or reconstructive nature of memory. I like to think of it as more like a Wikipedia page. You can go in there and edit it, but <laughs> so can other people. Yes. And actually, the funny thing why I, I tend to believe my sister's memory of this is more correct than mine is that my memories seem not to be very good. I mean, when I think back to my childhood, I can't remember that many things. And I can't quite remember whether it was that year or that year, whereas she has a, a really good memory. Why is it that some people have better memories than others? You know, I have the same situation with my younger brother. He's the one with the truly excellent memory. And so his, his siblings often defer to him when there's any, any kind of dispute about our childhood. 
you know, there, there are individual differences in memory. Some people have better memories than others. Some people pay better attention mm. to what's, what's happening around them, and others are more distracted. How do people react when you sit at a, di- a dinner table and they ask you what do you do and you tell them what you do and and then you you tell them well memories you can't actually always trust your memory because it's in large part constructed how do people react to that uh, i think people are a bit uncomfortable with the idea that there could be so many bits of fiction floating around in our 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 memory system along with the facts That makes people a little uncomfortable. Maybe that's why that there are periodic attempts to challenge the work that I and and, and many other scientists who do similar work uh, have been doing. You know, I think collectively we have made a very strong case for the malleable nature of memory and uh, even have some good arguments for why this might be a good kind of system for humans to have. So there is evolutionary reasons, good reasons for why our memory is as it is. Uh, yeah, and and I often get asked, you know, why would we be built this way? Why would God, why would Darwin have made human beings and the human memory system one that is so malleable? And there are a lot of reasons for that. I'll just give you a couple. Spontaneous errors creep into memory. And this flexible system means that we can update those errors that are in there spontaneously with accurate information. That would be a good thing. Mm. Another point to be made along this line is that there are prestige-enhancing memories that lots of people have, memory distortions. Uh, So people remember that they got grades that were better than they did, or they gave more to charity than they really did, or that... They voted in elections they didn't vote in, or that they had kids that walked and talked at an earlier age than they actually did. These prestige-enhancing memory distortions maybe make us feel a little better about ourselves. Yes. And interestingly, depressed people don't don't do this as much. So, so they've sometimes been called sadder but wiser. <laughs> you know, if we can feel a little better about ourselves, that might be a motivational reason for these kinds of distortions. And then I'll just give you one more. The the very same structures that are involved in the storage of memories of past experiences are also involved when people imagine different possible future outcomes. And to the extent that we could be flexible about imagining the future, anticipating different possible futures and how we're going to respond that would certainly be a useful feature of our thinking. Yes, absolutely. I don't remember where I was on the 10th of September, 2001, but I do remember where I was on 11th of September, 2001. So we have some times and some places where we do remember everything. So 9-11, I remember where I was when I heard the news. I remember exactly how I felt, what clothes I was wearing, whom I was with. I almost have a a film of that exact moment in time. And I probably have a couple of those times in my life. How much should I trust that memory? That kind of memory 
is referred to in the psychology literature as a flashbulb memory. The idea that when some major significant event happens, a public event like the planes flying into the Twin Towers in New York on 9-11, that somehow we have kind of a, a, well, a flashbulb memory for where we were when we heard the news. Flashbulb memories were studied for the assassination of President Kennedy. And in the United States, just about anybody who was over the age of eight years old at the time of that assassination has a memory of where they were when they heard the news. We have the impression that these are strong memories and maybe even like an imprint in the brain. But in fact, when researchers have studied them, they have found that even they are subject to contamination. Take people who, for example, shortly after 9-11, you ask them about where they were. So presumably it's, it's a few days later. Their story is presumably fairly accurate. They might say, I was in my dorm room and my roommate came rushing in and say, did you hear what's happening in lower New York? And they have a whole story about it. But when you come back to them two years or so later and ask them again, their stories frequently change. Hmm. Now the subject says, oh, yeah, I remember I first learned about it when when I turned on the television. So that is why people have sometimes said, you know, these these kinds of experiences, they're a little special, but they're not so special because they, too, are subject to distortion and change and the influence of newer thoughts, conversations, and ideas. So obviously, memory is something we use for remembering where did I park my car and so on. But it's also more integrated in our identity than that. Because if I have to tell you a little bit about who I am, I will have a, a string of memories from when I was five to now, and then I would have constructed a narrative around that. And that would be an identity. And that would probably been formed in my mid-twenties. Now, if I can't trust those memories completely, that would suggest that my core identity is up for negotiation all the time. Is, is that a fair way to think of it? It's true that our memories, you know, are a part of our identity. And I'm with you on, you know, when we share experiences, particularly when if we make a new friend or start a, a new friendship or a romantic entanglement, you're you're now telling stories about the past. And and I've got my favorite stories, I think are mostly true. But I suppose even if they aren't exactly true, even if they are the, the story I want to convey about myself, it might not matter very much yeah so that's that's a really fair point so obviously if i think that uh you know people really like me in fourth grade or something that's one thing but if we are in the court of law that's and and that's where we rely a lot on memory as well that's a whole different story we have to rely well the, our whole system is based on the foundation that people who come into a court of law not only will say the truth but also the truth that they say is the truth. And you've done a lot of work with in the court of law. What do you generally see in terms of eyewitness statements? How much can we rely on them? Whether we can rely on an eyewitness statement or not depends on the factors involved in this, the particular case. 
to the extent that you have a whole lot of problematic factors. Maybe there was an extreme amount of stress or fright. Maybe there's a long passage of time before there's a recollection or a reporting of the event. Maybe there's lots of suggestive information, biased media coverage or biased interrogation. Maybe there's a test of memory that's not a fair test. And to the extent that you have a pile on of these problematic factors, that's when you need to be really careful about relying on somebody's memory report, no matter how confidently it's expressed, no matter how much detail it has, no matter that the person cries when they tell you the story, it might not be an authentic, completely accurate story. So the person actually completely thinks it is correct. Can they pass a lie detector in that case because they actually believe so much in it? Or is there something that will trigger off in their neurosystem that will tell them that this is a lie? Of course, people can lie and people do lie and, and, you know, they lie for all kinds of reasons. But my study is people who are not deliberately lying. You know, one scientist once called them honest liars. They're people who really believe in what they're saying. If you believed in the accuracy of a lie detection test, then they're going to pass the lie detector. Uh, they're going to look very sincere. They're going to look authentic and in part because They've deceived themselves. Yes, it's really not a lie, but a memory which is not correct. I wonder whether you can retrieve the correct memory by hypnosis or any other ways that would make it more accurate than if the person told it, or is it actually that it is you cannot reconstruct it correctly, so to speak? Well, I, I would be very uh, leery of using hypnosis to try to ferret out some buried memories that had been overlaid or interfered with by subsequent suggestive information. Because especially when you're dealing with highly hypnotizable people, they're even more suggestible and even more easy to contaminate. And that's why so many jurisdictions in the United States have banned the use of witnesses who've had their uh, memories hypnotically refreshed for criminal trials. Okay. My ground is starting to shake a little bit because what we're suggesting is that a lot of our memory, it, it can be, it may not be completely correct. Even the ones where we would put a 99% mark on it because it's a flashbulb memory, it still may not be completely right. And in many cases, it doesn't really matter that you wore a blue dress or a, a red dress at a party 10 years ago, probably doesn't matter so much. But in some cases, it does actually matter very much. And two cases I can think of, one is is my core identity, which is built on a few precious memories that I have. The other place is in the court of law, I suppose. When you examine how accurate memories are. Is there a measure around how accurate memories are generally, or how, how do we find out how accurately people remember? When you're an experimental psychologist, as I am, and you do experiments, and you show people simulated accidents or simulated crimes, and then you test memory under a variety of conditions, you, you, you know what the ground truth is. So you know that the memory report you're getting where it is accurate and where it's inaccurate, what many of the conditions are that lead to inaccuracy. When you get involved in a court case, you don't always know what really happened. 
when I am consulting in actual court cases, which I do periodically, I'm looking to see, are there examples of factors that are known from the literature to produce problems for accurate memory? And am I seeing changes in somebody's memory report? You know, one common thing that happens is somebody goes to a, a lineup to try to identify a perpetrator. They're not very sure, or they look at some photos and they're not very sure. Maybe it's number two. And by the time they get to trial, they're super confident. They're super confident. It's the person who happened to be number two in the photograph. And now that person gets convicted. Well, how did that confidence go from I'm not very sure to I'm absolutely certain? Sometimes it's because those witnesses are given other information. That's who we think it is. That's our suspect. Their fingerprints, we think we're at the scene. And so now you've inflated the witness's confidence. You've made them a much powerful, more compelling witness when they testify at trial and they end up getting uh, somebody convicted, whether that person is innocent or guilty. I think the knowledge of maybe that memories are not completely accurate can also help, for instance, with, with conflicts. So maybe a conflict that started 10 years ago with my neighbor, and I have a vivid memory of what happened. He has a vivid memory of what happened. But if we both start from an understanding that Obviously, how we've how our perception of it could be wrong, but also our memory itself could be wrong. That might loosen up some conflicts just by starting at that level, I suppose. Well, that's a great practical suggestion that flows from this particular scientific work. When I see a friend or a family member, or even I myself might make a mistake. I, I don't immediately assume that the family member, friend, or, or a big fat liar, maybe they really believe in what they're saying. Mm. It's a false belief or a false memory on their part. And that's a much kinder way to feel about other people. Greater tolerance, and I think, will help us get along better. Yes. It's interesting how even false memories can become so strong that you would you would bet your life almost that it is correct. I remember some studies I read late 60s and early 70s when people all of a sudden could remember things that had happened to them when they were children by their parents, for instance. There were memories that they had never had before, and then they were in, let's say, in therapy, and all of a sudden they had these new memories that that came out. And I suppose understanding memory also helped resolve some of those problems at that time when people all of a sudden had a memory that that came from nowhere but then all of a sudden became very real almost physically real for them i know that time period very well i was in the trenches of the memory wars where people were going into therapy maybe with one kind of problem maybe they had a, a depression or anxiety or an eating disorder and they would come out of this therapy believing that they had been traumatized Hmm. that they'd been maybe even forced into satanic rituals and forced to sacrifice animals. The most extreme and extensive, horrific brutalization is children. And, and some of them then would bring lawsuits against their parents or their other relatives or former neighbors 
former doctors or dentists, and it looked like it was really the highly suggestive psychotherapy that was contributing to this massive number of false accusations. But these supposedly repressed memories that were recovered after this suggestive psychotherapy were a big problem in society, and that problem is not completely over. Uh, really? I, because I thought that that, what should we call it, memory war at that time, actually showed that by informing the society about the fallacy of memory, that actually took away that problem. I would say it certainly reduced the problem. Mm. It, it didn't take it away completely. It contributed to the reduction in the problem. What contributed even more is when of hundreds of these patients began to realize that their memories were false. Yes. They had been induced to remember these things through the psychotherapy, and they filed lawsuits against their therapists, finding that they had jury verdicts and judgments against them for millions of dollars. That certainly helped to wake people up to the problem of some of these suggestive practices. And, but still today, it's not covered in the media as much because the media covered it so extensively. You know, these days, it, you have to have somebody really, really famous being accused or somebody really famous do the accusing in order to get it back in the news. Mm. But you still see these, we hear, here now still see these court cases and the families uh, caught up in these accusations. Okay. I'm trying to get my wife to remember that I remembered her anniversary, our anniversary two years ago, but it hasn't actually worked yet. So it's not all consistent work that plants false memories, unfortunately. The podcast, What Monkeys Do, is also about change and we also want to look at, is there anything we can do to maybe improve our memory? So there's really two things when I think about memory that I would like to be better at. One thing is to remember more of, say, my childhood. And the second is, after, especially after having spoken to you, improve the accuracy of my memories. Is there anything that I can do with my past memories? Or is there anything I should go forward that would make me remember things better? Is that something you have looked at into as well? Usually when people ask about how can I be better at remembering things, uh, they're not asking about remembering childhood. Hmm. I, I think if you want to remember things about childhood, you know, you might talk to other, other family members or people who were around. They could provide some retrieval cues for you that might help you remember some experiences that you haven't thought about for a, a long, long time. When people are asking me about how can I better remember, they want to know things like, you know, sometimes I hear somebody, I'm introduced to somebody at a party and shortly afterwards, I can't remember their name, even though they've just said their name. Is there something I can do about that? I'm so bad with names. Well, there is something you can do. And that is, couple of things, pay better attention. Sometimes we're not letting it sink in because we're not really paying attention. We're thinking about what we want to say next, but pay better attention at the time you're getting the information. And then you want to rehearse that information afterwards. You know, I just learned your name is, is Morton. 
And I now know I've got to pay attention, Morton, and I want to rehearse it. But how do I rehearse it? Do I, do I say it to myself every 10 minutes or, or what do I do? What's the pattern of rehearsal? Well, we have identified the best patterns of rehearsal. And that best pattern is not every 10 minutes. It, it's an expanding pattern. Five minutes and think, okay, it's Morton. Then maybe I'll wait another 20 minutes and try it again. Yep, it's Morton. Then I'll wait maybe an hour and then five hours. You see the expanding pattern. And that is the best pattern for rehearsal if I want to lock that name in and be able to remember it when I want to say hello to you again or, or refer to you in some conversation. With me particular, I remember numbers incredibly well and names quite poorly. And I have a friend, she's the other way around. Is that a thing or is that just because we happen to like numbers or people better or what? what is, what is down to with that? The only thing I can relate that too is the idea that sometimes people are better at remembering things that they're interested in. Mm. I don't know about numbers versus names, but if they're better at remembering things they're interested in and less likely possibly to be distorted, that, that may help explain the number versus name issue. I mean, I know if I'm listening to the radio and, and while driving in my car and I hear stock market prices, I'm more interested that and I can tell you that Apple stock is now at this today. But if I baseball scores, okay, I don't remember them at all. They they just don't stick. And I'm sure the reverse has got to be true for lots and lots of other people. Yes, generally in, in terms of memory, um, what is the latest that we have discovered about memory, or what is sort of new ground that we are looking at in terms of memory from a scientific point of view? Well, there is recent work that I think is pre pretty interesting showing that your pre-existing biases can affect what you remember. And your pre-existing biases can affect how likely you are to be susceptible to memory contamination. People, for example, who are biased against a particular political party are more likely to show distortions that make the opposition look bad. Yes. I collaborated in a, uh, on a study that was done in Ireland in conjunction with the referendum on abortion, which showed that the pro-choice people were more likely to develop a false memory that made the opposition look bad. And the same thing for the anti-choice people, more likely to fall for false memory that made the opposition look bad. I mean, this might help us think about why we have so much dissension in our culture right now and so much infighting in our different political groups because they may have very, very different memories. Yes. Well, that may give us some idea about how we might solve that problem. Yes, I think that's really, really fascinating because... We know about biases. Uh, I think we've come a long way with that. Daniel Kahneman obviously is a is a big influencer in that area. Has shown how we pay attention to things. You know how much our bias influences what we pay attention to, what we decide, and how much that is out of our yes, of course, conscious decision making. 
But how that would also influence our memory, I think, makes a ton of sense. Because if you say that what we pay attention to also impacts what we remember, then our biases and our unconscious biases, most of the case, would impact our memory in great deal. So the problem obviously is that they are often unconscious and biases are difficult to be aware of. Using that in a practical sense might actually be difficult. I mean, the first thing is to be aware of your biases and then be aware of the distortion that it makes on your decisions and your memory, and then to make an active choice that it shouldn't do. That's a hard thing to do, I suppose. It is a hard thing to do, but and it may be that we can get some help from technology to do it. Hmm. I recently wanted to uh, read an article that some friend on Facebook had posted and then to share it. And Facebook pops up with, before you share this, are you aware that this article is eight years old? Wow. Oh, no, I wasn't. I thought it was a recent article. And so then I'm slowed down. I can think about, do I still want to share it even though it's eight years old? Well, similar kinds of alerts and warnings to slow people down and kind of alert them to the potential for it's old or it's been heavily disputed or some other aspect about the content might help with this infodemic that we have. This is not something people talk a lot about. So bias is obviously a a hot topic, but it's mainly around the decisions that we make. And I think if we could add on that it also impacts the memory that we have and therefore our future decisions, then I think that that would give a whole lot more credence to we need to use technology to to as a, as a as a way to overcome this. Well, I like that. Yes. Yeah. You're going to keep us employed. <laughs> I hopefully hopefully I will. Let's say that I am sitting at a dinner table tonight with a person that I don't really know and and she will ask me so uh, memory, I don't know anything about memory. What three things should I know about memory that I don't know? And she has what I would call an average knowledge of of what memory is. What three things should I tell her that she should know about our memory? The first thing I can think of to answer that question about what do I want people to know about memory? I gave a TED talk a few years ago. What I basically said at the end of this talk is, I want to leave you with this take-home lesson. Just because somebody tells you something and they say it with a lot of detail, just because they express it with a lot of confidence, just because they show emotion when they tell you, it doesn't mean it actually happened. Mm. False memories have these same characteristics, and you need independent corroboration to know whether you're dealing with an authentic memory or one that's a product of some other process like imagination dreams that you're confusing with reality or or some other process besides a true perception and memory. Fantastic. I saw that TED talk and I will I will encourage all listeners to go and see that. It's a phenomenal TED talk by the way. And I think ending with on that note is a great way to end both the TED talk but also this conversation. Elizabeth, I want to say thank you very much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. I think knowledge about our memory is something that I still think that most people believe that memories are 
almost a, a movie of what happened at that time taken from their perspective of their eyes. And it is not. And I think your work is phenomenally important. And thanks very much for having this conversation. Okay. Well, my pleasure, Morton. <laughs> Thank you very much. I have been looking forward to this interview for a while. Elizabeth is an inspiration and a fantastic resource in the field of memory and in the field of psychology of memory. I took three things away from our conversation. One, we cannot trust our memory. Our memory is simply not a true representation of what happened. Not even when we so strongly are convinced that we know what happened. Like, where were you on 9-11? It is possible to plant false memories in people, and our strongest memories may not be completely accurate. Two, our biases influence our memories. I have in other interviews talked about biases, how they affect our decision-making, how they affect the way we looked at the world, Elizabeth reminds us that our biases also influence our memories. We simply remember an event different from each other dependent on our biases. And that's another reason to watch out for all the biases we have. Three, we can train our memories. We can train to make our memories more accurate and be able to remember more. So if you're a person who's struggling to remember names of people that you've met at the party, you can actually do a couple of things. And even though they sound quite obvious, they actually help. So you can pay better attention. Attention actually improves the quality of your memory. So filtering out other things such as, such as your own thoughts actually helps. Also, rehearsing that information straight after also greatly improves the quality and your ability to remember correctly. Elizabeth has made a fantastic TED Talk, which has been watched more than 5 million times. The TED Talk is called How Reliable Is Your Memory? And even though you now know the answer to that, it's a video that I will recommend anyone to see. So enjoy that. Until next time, take care.